Welcome to Awaken, a podcast about being awake in today's world. Hi there, and welcome to season two of the Awaken podcast. This entire season, I'll be chatting with Aaron Goggins and Chani Singh, who are co-conspirators of mine on a project we're calling the Wild Seed Society. Wild Seed is a lot of things. It's a Buddhist-inspired BIPOC spiritual community, a platform for autonomous activist projects and resource sharing, and much more. It's a little hard to describe, but we're hoping this podcast helps to give it some shape as we move forward. Hope you enjoy this season. We've been talking in the past couple of weeks about the Wild Seed Society, what it is, how we think about it, talking a lot about liberation logic. And part of liberation logic and its relationship to Wild Seed has been these design principles. And principles of design is like a fad thing now that more and more groups are talking about as like engineering and tech becomes like a bigger part of our cultural zeitgeist to some things chagrin. Uh, but I think in general, design principles really help us remember and focus on the purpose is to change society. And the purpose is to like build spaces that are different than the hegemonic spaces. And so last week, we talked a lot about the design principles of liberation logic as regards to insight, one of the three fundamental meta-technologies. And this week, we're going to talk more about interdependence. And this, I think, gets into the heart of how Wild Seed thinks about community building, taking interdependence to kind of mean balancing autonomy and collectivity, and thinking of autonomy more as self-governing than like atomistic, like not individual, but self-governing, creating its own destiny and, and making decisions for oneself in a collective context and seeing the collective as an entity that thrives as individuals are able and supported to meet their destiny, to pursue their purpose. And that's sort of how communities thrive and that autonomy and collectivity are not mutually exclusive or contradictory. They're actually uh, complementary and, and need each other. This dynamic between the collective and the individual, I feel like for many folks might feel unintuitive. This to me is no better illustrated than in Maladoma Patrice May's The Healing Wisdom of Africa. Folks might know Maladoma from Water and the Spirit, which is his most famous work, his memoir. But he is a Dagaran elder out of Burkina Faso. Hmm. And he wrote a, a wonderful book, and he talks about it as individuality, not individualism, is the cornerstone of community individuality is synonymous with uniqueness. This means that a person and his or her gifts are irreplaceable. The community loves to see all of its members flourish and function at optimal potential. In fact, a community can flourish and survive only when each member flourishes, living in the full potential of his or her purpose. To honor and support its members is in the self-interest of any community. I think that's just like really important that we talk about individualism in the U.S., the idea that you are on your own and you are the fundamental unit of society. And that is not how the Dagaran and a lot of indigenous folks view it. Every individual is unique and therefore sacred, but we are fundamentally individualizations of a communal whole. 
our families, our friends groups, our communities. And also, I think folks like Maldoma would extend that to we are individualizations of the universe itself, right? That like we are one particular manifestation of all that is life. And communities are life meeting itself in a particular way. And like any ecology, a community needs individuals who are thriving in order to thrive as an ecology. And that doesn't require and actually falls apart if individuals subvert their own thriving to the good of the group. Mm -hmm. But also an individual's thriving happens within the context of mutual relationships. So it's not whatever you want as an individual goes. It's how can your thriving contribute back into the community and how the community can support you to live deeper into your purpose. And I think that's just a fundamentally different way to think about the connection between individual and community. I love that. I definitely see how that's present in how we relate to each other in Wild Seed and also other spaces that I've gotten to spend time with you two and other members of Wild Seed. When you were first speaking to it, I was like, uh, I don't know how I see those not being mutually exclusive because that's been such a huge part of, I think, like societies is either or. It's either like a communal focused society or group or community or an individual focused society or group. But then when you read that passage, it really clicked into place that we all get to be valued for our unique skills and talents and humanity and perspective and how valuable that is to us as a group. I think that's beautiful. As the person who has thought of this more, like I can only imagine having this newer, unfamiliar definition of individuality and community be complementary. What are some of the problems that you run into as you start to like build these spaces, as we start to build these spaces? Yeah, I'm just, I think that's a great question. I'm just looking through this book and just remarking on how wise Maladoma Patrisome is about community and like the West's inability to find belonging in community. And I think to me that the most difficult part of building community is how resistant people are to it. And he writes, people's resistance to community in the West may also come from an undeveloped sense of personhood. Someone who believes that community exists in order to provide for his or her needs without having to give anything in response will probably never find the right community. In this case, resistance arises from an old, unmet psychological needs. Since giving is the modus operandi of community, proper spiritual and community clarity within are necessary for establishing a sense of belonging. Otherwise, people tend to look for spirit using the same compulsive methods that they search for other material goods. We talk about community in, in the United States as this like thing that is supposed to take care of you because like business doesn't do that, community does. Government doesn't take care of you, community does. And it's like this like catch-all phrase of where you're supposed to get your needs met, but like you're not supposed to build it or give to it. It is a thing that is just supposed to exist. And there is a lot of really interesting writing about the impulse that guides the gift economy and the idea that the gift economy is the original economy and it's still the largest economy because like the things you have to do to be a human being, right? Like raising children is just a massive gift from one generation to the next. Children don't really give a lot back. And like parents write like little nice things about, oh, I feel so 
purposeful and like I love my kid, but like mostly it's a one way relationship for for the vast majority of our upbringing. That baby is just it's taking milk, it's taking love and affection, it's taking heat. It, it just doesn't have the capacity to give back that like unilateral giving of oneself produces something that is fundamental to the human experience. And that is the beginning of community is actually the giving of yourself to another without the expectation of a return. And that mutuality and reciprocity actually come later, right? Like after humans experience the pleasure and sense of dignity of being useful to life, that's when like a mutuality develops, that it actually starts as a unilateral direction and that you like the expectation of you return what I give to you is actually a like when it comes first, when the expectation is the start of giving, it actually is a different thing mm-hmm. and like cultivates a different set of needs in a person. And I think that to me is something that we often don't really sit with that like we live in a society where giving is so gendered, the unilateral giving of yourself to another is something like we only really think about as motherhood and leave motherhood to such a small group of people. It's like something that all women are supposed to do, but it's also something that you're only supposed to do to like children, you know, from a very particular time. You know, people will say in the relationships, like I felt like I was mothering him as that, as that's a bad thing. And I think that when we live in a patriarchal society in which women are expected to step into the gap of how unnurturing social reproduction is and unnurturing capitalism is, I think it's messed up. But like part of what we call mothering is just what it means to be in community, to give unilaterally to another person as you see needs arise, especially needs that you are uniquely suited to give, is what it means to be in community. One of the things that I think we don't think about is like that, like we have to mother ourselves. Mm. And that's why like the book that I think has transformed me the most politically in my entire life is the book Revolutionary Mothering, which is edited in in part by Dr. Alexis Pauline Govs. And it's just phenomenal and basically makes that same point that like what we need more than anything is revolutionary mothering and that we need to remother ourselves. Even those of us that had great mothers like I did, like that is just a fundamental part of being human. And it's not something Mm -hmm. to only restrict to women or only restrict to people who biologically gave birth to another being, but it is that unidirectional giving because a need is there. And, And also I think in a developmental sense, and I think in order for that to be possible, One, you have to get people like me and Ravi, who have been socialized as men, to like just know how to do that. Whether it comes naturally or not, we certainly haven't been nurtured to like know how to do that or know Mm -hmm. how to receive it. And you have to support people who have been defaulted into that role, right? That like it can't be extractive. And so you have to both teach other people how to do it, normalize the receiving of it. And like prioritize making sure the people who we've naturalized as mothers versus who like, I don't think it, I don't think mothering comes naturally to almost anybody, but we have naturalized it and say that it is the realm of certain kinds of women um, to make sure that they are also supported in the same way. And I think that is the real trick of community. 
because the people who do it so well, it's it's not consensual. You know, it's also this like, oh, I'm gonna mother you. Like I, I see me and my partner Sandra have this conversation all the time, where she's just like taking care of people. What you do is what you do in community, and I'm like, you're not meeting my needs. You're doing what you think you should do for me, which is like <laughs> not the same thing. You think there's a way we should be. And you are like helping me to be in that way, but that's not actually what I want. And that's not how I want to meet my needs. Those issues are so thorny and interesting, but also juicy. So I guess the fourth thing, in addition to like normalizing mothering, supporting mothering, and like making sure that the people who are naturalized as mothers are also supported, is like creating a culture of consent around nurturance. I used to think for a while that you had to like articulate your needs in order to get them met. And like, there's just so many times where you just can't articulate your needs, but it is something consensual in nurturance being offered in such a way that you can turn it down mm-hmm. and that you don't have to accept it and that you can try it and say like, this didn't work for me to meet my needs, but I was able to receive that it was offered in this like generous way. And that like that meets a human need to have people try and meet your needs, even when they can't. Mm-hmm. And I think that to me is like the core of things that we don't often talk about when we talk about building community. Can you say a little bit more about the relationship, like the relationship between this idea of mothering and how that contributes and works with the dynamic of the individual and the collective or the autonomy and collective? I think that's an interesting link and one that I feel probably it would be helpful for us to spend some time with. I I think I have left my copy of the book at uh, at my sister's house and I will try and find it and see if we can like add it as an addendum. It's so great at describing it in a way that like, I feel like my words will just be terrible paraphrases. But I think that mothering is a really expansive concept. It's a really great metaphor. It can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. But I think that the reality of life that's really hard for, like, somebody who was raised on, like, a farm in Colorado, for me, as, like, you're supposed to be deeply autonomous, you take care of your own needs, is that there seems to be, whether it is, like, deep mammalian DNA or, like, some unmet need of how our society is created, there is a really deep need for a particular kind of belonging and to get needs through relationships, right? Like, humans aren't rational like we have the capacity for reason but the vast majority of decisions we make aren't made to like rationally win because we sacrifice what might be like better or more efficient for some social relationship economists talk about this now all the time and evolutionary biologists talk about this all the time that there are these set of social needs that we have and i think that mothering is an important focus of that because in a lot of ways it's one that we are most consistently robbed of because it's almost impossible to compensate and like put into a capitalist model. What we often in many Western industrial patriarchal societies view as fathering is somehow a little easier, right? Like a coach is a really good example of someone who just like has your back. That like protective force that just like has your back. Society is much better at like providing that in some sort of commoditized way though i would argue that we are we are mostly most of us are also unfathered in a particular way but mothering it's almost inherently anti 
capitalistic. The unidirectional giving of another person, as you see needs arise, just because you feel that people deserve to have their needs met. That relationship, whatever form it comes, whether it's two people socialized as men supporting each other, or a literal mother who gave birth biologically to a child, I think is at the center of like a lot of the good things that we think about in community of just like being able to show up and be supported. And I think it's often what we are looking for in community, but we have, we've gotten so used to what some people call like colonizing dichotomies. We've gotten so used to like, there are people who give nurturance and people who receive it. And so we try and go into communities with our nurturers and receive the nurturing from them rather than creating spaces where we're all giving to create that sense of like, oh, we're actually, I'm useful to other people. And because of that sense of like joy of giving, it becomes mutual and then it starts to resource itself. We have this history of like, oh, capitalism is fucked up, but let me go to like my black femme friends who are like, give me all this joy and love. We get supported, but who's supporting those black femmes, right? And like Mm -hmm. to actually resource something outside of the system, hegemony, capitalism, whatever we want to call it. I think we have to focus on how do we set people up to give unidirectionally without an expectation of receiving so that mutuality can like naturally arise from that deeply human experience of supporting each other. Reverend Earth Emanuel also puts it beautifully, which is like finding refuge by offering it to others. Mm. And I think that's the heart of interdependence for me. It's like, this thing that I mean, my you could you could you could write my whole life as a search for belonging, as somebody who always felt like they didn't belong and just had this massive open wound as a need for belonging, and it wasn't until I realized that like the best way to find belonging for yourself is to start offering it to other people, and I think that's a beautiful lesson, and I think there's a limit to that truism, right? That like. If all you do is give and nobody gives back, that can be incredibly draining. Mm-hmm. So much of what you're saying is really, really resonating. Mm. And it feels really, really powerful, like the context that you've put it in and that mothering ourselves and mothering each other. This is the piece that I wanted to ask you about, because like, it just interests me to hear more about that consensual piece, you know, like where we're not like enforcing mothering on someone else because it's potentially our naturalized role or what we feel comfortable in or what we've been taught is like what we are meant to do in these instances, Um, but how we can mother in a more consensual way or even step into that role. Yeah, we'd just love to hear you talk a little bit more about that consent piece and and, um, stepping into support others when that is what they have decided they want. Me and my partner, Sandra, have had this like ongoing struggle in our relationship she comes from a korean family where like mutual care is just like what you do you don't really name it and everybody just cares for each other and it's really divorce even in like a way that i can now see as beautiful but at the time was like this is strange from like liking somebody you know or like the sweetness from which i always experience care not that there wasn't sweetness but it's just like you just care for people it's what you do And, you know, the idea that, like, it is unbelievably rude to not feed somebody, 
to not care if somebody has eaten is like wishing death on them, you know? And me coming from, it's a sign of respect that you trust somebody to meet their needs. And so like the fact that you can come into my house and go into my refrigerator and cook yourself a meal is like the ultimate sign of like intimacy and respect. It's that like, and that was just so rude to her when she came and visited. And I was like, yeah, you can go grab food out of the fridge. And she was like, you're not going to cook me a meal. And I'm like, I'm not hungry. You have access to my food. That seems like a deep, intimate statement of like, I care about your thriving. I bought these things and you can use them at any time. And like, we would have these conversations where she would like cook for me. And she was like, I cooked for you. And I'd be like, oh, I already ate. And she would just like be like distraught. And I'd be like, you didn't ask me if I wanted food. I got hungry. So I cooked it myself. There was like, there was a lot of this, like, I just want to cook for you. And I grew up like with this ideal that I didn't understand men who couldn't cook. And so I am like very proud of my ability to cook full meals for myself. And I was a little offended that like that I needed to be cooked for. And I was like, yeah, I have a mom. She was phenomenal. She did her job. And now mothering has ended. And I can just cook for myself. And like, if you want to eat what I'm eating, you're welcome to it. I can cook for two. But like, we're adults. We can cook for ourselves. And I think some of it was like me being like, it's okay to be taken care of. But some of it too was like, I just didn't want to eat that. Like, you never asked me if that was something that I wanted to do. And I think there's this like word or phrase in Japan that I'm going to butcher. But the description of it to me is like, it's it, it just gets to the whole consent for me. It's erigata miwaku, an act someone does for you that you didn't want to have them do and tried to avoid having them do, but they went ahead anyway, determined to do you a favor, and then things went wrong and caused you a lot of trouble. Yet in the end, social conventions required you to express gratitude. <laughs> I was like, that, I see that so often in like in cultures where care is the norm it's just like but it mm-hmm. takes so much work to let me care for you and like you know i have a friend who's from the south and every time i go over they're like i want to cook for you and they're so offended when i don't eat their food mm. but it's like you don't eat meat like you don't like you like you think that the things that i eat aren't healthy and then you judge me mm-hmm. for wine like i was like i want a steak and if i came to your house and you always cooked me a steak that would be great. But you're trying to give me like wheat things and organic toast and that's delicious for you. But like, let's be clear. You want to be hospitable to me. You're not actually interested in meeting a need that I've articulated and need met. You know, <laughs> it's like, this is actually, is this about caring for me as a person? Or is this about you feeling like you're a good host? Mm-hmm. Or is this about you loving me, but not being willing to like, listen to what I receive as love? Mm-hmm. And I think that's important because I think, What I've learned over time is that it's both. Like, people don't just have love languages that they need to receive things. People also have love languages that they need to, like, express themselves and love other people. Like, I would argue it is a human social need to express our love of other people in particular ways. Mm -hmm. And so I think the crux is finding relationships where people consent to have your love expressed in a particular way. And creating spaces where you can get to know each other to such an extent that you can actually effectively recognize a need and meet it in a way that the other person can't receive. And to me, this is setting up an idea of interdependence that's so far beyond 
like the typical social justice view of like a checklist of like what makes something problematic or not. This gets to such a deeper, specific human context of like what works for Chani, mm -hmm. what works for Ravi, not like what in theory is revolutionary comrade love, but like what does this person need? What do I have the potential to like offer? And like what feels good for me to offer and what feels good for them to receive? And like how do we make that work? We often talk about it as like rethinking of consent as co-creation. It's not talking about just what do people agree to say yes to. It's about what are people's deep social, physical, economic needs and how can we work together to co-create the conditions in which all of our needs can be met rather than thinking about what can I best get out of the situation? How can I like get a thing I'm okay with? It's like, how do we look at all that we want and all that we're able to do and change the actual conditions and to be, you know, maybe a little more Taoist about it, like to actually cultivate conditions where the, the fulfilling of our needs naturally arises through the way that we interact with each other. I feel like that's a really good segue into like, Yes, Aaron, tell us how we do that. <laughs> like, do you have an idea or? I think this is what the design principles try to help us think about. The revolution would have been done happened if I knew how to build community that everybody felt a sense of belonging and deep togetherness. And, you know, like if we could get lefty, you know, queer and queer adjacent folks to like, be in a community that doesn't break up in some like terribly heart crushing way every four years, like we would have already, <laughs> we would have already done it. And so I think the design principles really like point us in a direction of like, how do we get it? I think it's rethinking of our relationships in such a way that doesn't view those like things that come together and they're so beautiful and then they go away as necessarily a failure. And I think like taking a more Buddhist view of it is like, it's this, like any community is just an ephemeral coming together of people and it's always going to end. And like, how do we come together in these ways that like crest and fall and crest and fall and not trying to hold on to some like deep belonging without conflict. That's just like not really natural. Mm -hmm. How do we allow our relationships to transition? And I think for me, that's, that's a lot of what the first principle of interdependence deals with. Getting in the pocket together, embracing polyrhythm and polycentrism, moving together like music, being in tune with community needs while meeting our own. But I think oftentimes we experience this deep unifying energy. There's a lot of words for it. I think Pali has a really great word that exists in a lot of Buddhist sutras that I'm not really sitting with. It's not agape, but it's something, agape is like a Greek term for like universal love, but there's something very similar of like coming together and feeling a deep unity with other people. There's like an idea of like synchronicity and alignment. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we make the mistake of assuming that that synchronicity and deep alignment and and like perfect unity where like we interpenetrate each other in this really deep way right where like i see myself in you and you see yourself in me and like we're the same and this like almost sort of like nirvana experience of community is like what community is supposed to be all the time 
and like we're searching for unity of purpose. We're searching for, you know, like everybody agrees on this plan of action and we implement it. And I think that's just like not the way to think about it. Like everybody hitting the same note at the same time shouldn't be our guide for community. And that's what I love about the black music tradition and like music tradition that comes out of West Africa, right? That like part of it is syncopation, like hitting the note before the note is a part of what makes you feel like you're a part of it. And people doing their own thing in line with other people is what makes music beautiful. And you can't wait for another person to do something in order to be with them. There is this like anticipatory thing that happens when you get in the pocket where like you're just in tune. And it doesn't actually mean you're playing the same notes or even the same melody, but it's what you're playing sort of like aligns with each other and reverberates. And that is the space for people to actually be playing different instruments um, and different melodies, but for it all to come together. And that kind of sense of resonance, where even that like call and response to like shift with the community can be seen as part of a musical game and not like, oh, we got out of sync, now it's a problem, get back on beat. It's like, no, there's this like beautiful part of jazz where things disintegrate and then the next song starts. Mm-hmm. And thinking of our community belonging more like that as not something to be controlled and not to like, no, play this beat, you know, but like, okay, you're playing this beat. I want to play this beat. How can I march with you to get to something better? Right. And a lot of musical like improvisation is just like, they're trying this. I'm going to try this. And then they respond and we respond. And we're not trying to create anything specific. We're trying to get in relationship with what we want to be playing and what the other person wants to be playing, and what that sounds like together. Mm-hmm. And that as a way to think about community, right? That like sense of what do we want to play together, I often talk about as a touchstone. That felt sense of a community being on purpose, and like this is what it feels like. And that to me is a lot of what Wild Seed does. You know, it's less about what's our mission and what's the most strategic thing. You know, because sometimes we'll come up with a strategy that just like doesn't feel right, that doesn't feel like what Wild Seed is. And so people put out different ways to address a situation until something feels like what it is we're trying to do together. And that solution might be rest, you know? <laughs> like what it feels right might be actually we just don't do anything. It might be everybody actually does a different thing, but we do it in a particular way that feels energetically unified. And so for me, thinking about community in that way is a big part of how we can make belonging and places where people really do feel they can get their needs met more sustainable and longer lasting. It's because rest and pauses and syncopation and changing of tempos and changing of songs is all a part of how we get a continued experience. It's not just doing the same thing over and over again with precision. Mm, I really like that. It's not wronging the process. It's humanizing the process and really being like, yeah, this is a part of it. When we get all off beat and like everything falls apart, that is part of being in community and being in more skillful community and more aligned community is like getting messy, knowing that that is valuable in that moment and not wrong. I love it. Yeah. And as you said, yeah, I mean, that, that I think goes directly to the next principle which is allowing things to get messy so that everyone has access to resources and belongings, regardless of race, class, gender, sexual orientation, ability, or anything like that, and releasing ego's attachment to form. 
and this is something that I got from the disability justice movement. Like if you want to be accessible, it means that like perfect agenda where everything is really clear cut may does not work. People need breaks. People got to bring in their beds so they can lay down and elevate their legs. You might have to spend the first 45 minutes building a ramp so that everybody can get in like that's what it means for something to be accessible and for everybody to get their needs met and access to the resources that to me requires things to get messy and it also requires a deeper level of praxis for me it means that like the way that we teach something has to be in line with what we're trying to teach so the act of getting people access to it is the lesson itself if that makes sense You know, like so often we're like, I want to teach people about like trauma. And then we create a space that people who are traumatized can't be in. You know, it's just like clinically, we're just going to go through and name all the things as opposed to like, we're going to get a group of people together and like try and make it trauma informed. And if somebody gets triggered by it, the process of holding that and setting boundaries around how much we can hold and what we can't and debriefing the boundary setting and maybe like trying to reintegrate a traumatized person later on, all of that is the lesson itself, is the thing we came together to do, to get people access to that knowledge and that experience. And the way that we tried to get people access embodied it. And that made it far more accessible because it allows people to show up as fully human. And if something that was planned doesn't work, everybody else still gets some touchstone of it or some essence of what they were hoping to learn by practicing what they came to learn. And so obviously, like, I think that works for a lot of left social justice spaces. It doesn't work for everything, right? Like, I don't know how, you know, how it would necessarily work for like physics, <laughs> with unless you needed to build a ramp in which that's like clearly a physics <laughs> project, you know, like that's, you know, actually, now that I think about it, you could you maybe could do it for everything, right? But it, it focuses us to think really differently about making something really practical, which goes back to the design principles of of last week about connecting the spiritual, social, and scientific to each other and to everyday life. And that part of that actually is what allows for this deep practice of action, reflection, action to be possible and to be accessible because everything should be tied to human life. And if some people's human life need things to access belonging or resources, then whatever subject matter has a connection to that because the people who are interested in it have a connection to that. My my partner Sandra has a friend who throws on this ugly conference in the Bay. And I, I heard about it and I like I'm gonna be honest, my initial reaction was like, oh my gosh, like how far is this like looking into our marginalization gonna go? And I was like, people are just identifying with all sorts of things. And I was so wrong about the conference. It was so amazing. It was in some ways like the most radical conference I had ever heard of and like got to be a part of because it acutely analyzed something that is so crucial to human experience and to be really Marxist about it, social reproduction that we don't talk about, but how much conventional beauty plays a part in our role of who we think deserves resources, Mm. even those resources of attention, of time, but also money, employment, and how much a really narrow version of attractiveness, like the normalized attractiveness, changes even how we think about sex, right? And that like our generation actually has 
way less sex. There, there are some, there are some studies that say that millennials have less sex than every generation ahead. Hmm. Every generation previous that's been then surveyed, and they think that part of it, there's tons of reasons for it, but one contributing factor has been our focus on physical attractiveness mm. in a, like a particular way um, versus like who we're actually sexually attracted to, you know, like who's like nice to look at and who looks like they could be a movie star versus like who we would enjoy like actually going through sexual acts with actually just creates this like disconnect of pleasure, enjoyment and engagement. And that like we as a society now tie all sorts of things and all sorts of acts of deservedness and whether you can get things to whether people are conventionally attractive until you can get like weird, weird things of like, I remember somebody brought up like pursuing people who were attractive that we weren't attracted to. And that just like blew my mind as I think about the idea that like someone could be physically attractive and literally like you would paint them or take pictures of them or they're just nice to look at, but aren't necessarily the people that you are sexually attracted to or necessarily the people you like want to spend time with. Mm -hmm. But you do it not necessarily because you want to do that activity with someone who's attractive, but that's probably part of it, but also just because socially that's just a weird ass expectation we created that somehow things are better when you do them with attractive people, which is just like not actually true to our experience of like hanging out with people. And so much like I think about romantic attraction is actually a thing that arises from knowing somebody. I, I you know, I'm probably going to say something that's like out of line with these brilliant humans who like put together this conference, <laughs> but it's just, it's just mind blowing. The, the things that we create as a society about people's bodies and what is a good body, what is a healthy body, what is an able body, what is a beautiful body that actually denies people access to attention, to belonging, to love, to comradeship for, for just not necessarily no reason, but terrible, asinine, arbitrary reasons. And that part of creating a sense of interdependence and belonging is actually like naming that and like undoing it. And I think in some ways, the work of recognizing the ways that we and others have been taught to think of ourselves as ugly actually train us to look at people differently in which like we see not only ourselves as more beautiful, but also once you realize how arbitrary this like and, and sometimes unattainable the normalization of beauty is, the more actually beautiful other people start to seem to you in this like strange way. And I think that's a part of it too, that in a way that we don't talk about. And I think, you know, as my one of my friends said, Max says like charisma is another part of this too. Like people who are not mm -hmm. physically attractive but are charismatic. I, that's the thing our movement struggle with is like how to not just give everything up to the charismatic person. And I say this as someone who is like sometimes incredibly charismatic and like, it can be really hard for people to be like, I don't actually agree with you, Aaron, but you said it in a way that was like really hard to resist, but it's just, it's just not true for me. Or it's like factually not yeah. true, but you said it in a way that like makes you want to believe you. And I think that is like, a thing that we have to struggle with is not necessarily like having no place for charisma, but just giving mm -hmm. it a healthy, reasonable place and not ever having the lack of charisma mean that people can't get access to resources and belonging. Mm -hmm.
I like that a lot. It kind of like reflects back your action reflect action moment that you mentioned um, in the last episode. In this case, like action, maybe being like listening to someone charismatic speak and before making choices, like noting, taking a moment to reflect on like where your urge to meet them and then give them resources comes from. If you're literally like, yeah, I don't actually agree with that. And I don't want to do that thing. Be like, oh, it came from your charisma. Okay, cool. I, I see that. And also like flipping that around and naming the responsibility that people have who do have more charisma and more in alignment with like traditional beauty standards or like the unattainable beauty standards, like to be able to hold that as well. Is that something that's a piece of it? The thing that I would say is like, don't fall for your own hype, right? Like part of it is supporting people who are charismatic and beautiful and like separating what they're actually good at from what people say they're good at because it just like, because they're pretty or because they said it well. Right. And like, I love being able to say a community created something and we went through our discernment process for it to work. And because I'm charismatic, I get to sell it because we know that it works and we know who it works for. And I sell it to the people who it's actually useful. I think part of human belonging and coming together is convincing people to go along with something. And I don't think that is coercive or manipulative in a bad way. I just think we have to separate people being able to convince you of something from the argument being good, right? From the mm -hmm. like the argument being good from the argument being valid, right? Like mm -hmm. just have to create the cultural discernment. I mean, it's not just attractiveness and charisma. It's also just race, class, and gender, right? Like if you're college educated and you can put it in a way that sounds more legit, that doesn't make your idea more valid. And being able to separate from the thing that you can put in a way that people are more comfortable with from the thing that will actually get the thing that people need. The more men can say like, oh, is this a good idea or are people just more comfortable with it because I said it? And then having people who know that like when I say something, it'll carry more weight, allowing the group to make discernment without that. And then for some people, turning it on or off and being like, this actually is not the majority proposal, but I need to say what I think and figuring out a way to say it without building up mm -hmm. that. Or, you know, being like, you know what? I'm charismatic as fuck and I like being charismatic. So can I put myself in a role where a community decides what we're going to do and I can just use my natural charisma or my cultivated charisma to like make it a reality? Having that be the place for it, not the place of deciding what is good but mm -hmm. the place of like making people feel better about the best choice that the community came up with. That's really cool. Once again, that kind of comes back to like not making any of the options wrong. So long as there's that co-creative process that goes into it, where we can all contribute and we're all taking accountability and, and honoring like what we are skilled at and what might, you know, just be like natural. It just feels nice that there's multiple ways of navigating people's, skills and like natural leg ups without making them wrong in the space but like just finding ways they get to be that are helpful and supportive and not minimizing others and marginalizing others yeah the 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 next principle is meeting each other in the space beyond right and wrong while compassionately naming impacts of unskillful action there's that beautiful uh roomy quote that's like, I'll probably butcher the paraphrasing because nobody's good at describing it uh, as Rumi is. But, you know, there's a place beyond right and wrong. Meet me there. And I just love that quote. 
And I feel like anybody who's like looked at existential philosophy comes to this like dark space of like, there is no way to be. And that means nothing's good. But that also means you can't really tell people that what they do is bad. And like a lot of people read existentialism and stop there. And this to me is the other side of it. There is an ethics beyond that in which we Mm -hmm. say like, don't kill people. But it has to do with uh, an ethic that we kind of started off these episodes with, which is everybody being able to meet their needs with dignity. And that there are skillful ways if you can successfully hold nuance. And I would argue if you can embody insight, interdependence, and transformation, that you can actually get people's needs met in really skillful ways. And that for the most part, people are trying to meet their needs with the strategies that they have available to them and that it's actually less important and we can get put into these like really moralistic places if we try and talk about good or bad because good or bad is ultimately to me at the service of who is right and who is wrong so we can disregard who's Mm -hmm. wrong right Um, And I think of it like the Black Panther is a really great example of this. If we set it up as right and wrong, there's no action to take in that movie, right? Like people, people who were really like Killmonger is right. I just want to be like, what? He just killed everybody. Like, like he was right about one thing, you know, that like Wakanda was arrogant for being isolated and letting Things happen and I think should be held accountable in like the Marvel universe for like allowing slavery to happen and just chilling, being super rich, having the ability to stop it and doing nothing. Um, And if we focus on right and wrong, it's just like, well, I agree with that. So Killmonger must be right. He must be like the actual hero of the story. And I was like, nah, he was going to get a lot of people killed because arming people with guns is not a strategy for liberation. That's just, like, what do you do after you win? And, like, the people who are the best at fighting, maybe not the leaders that you want. Like, that's what I took away from Killmonger, was just, like, the person who can defeat you in battle. Maybe not about having that be how you choose choose leaders in a country. Like, maybe that was a flaw in the Wakandan system. But at the same time, like, I don't think we should just say that, like, because T'Challa did nothing, like, wrong maybe in a moralistic sense in that way that he was right like his like waffling on like what Wakanda should do wasn't Mm -hmm. helpful either and like while we're on the Black Panther trip I just want to say that I I don't think the choice (laughs) I think people who think that the choice was between T'Challa and Killmonger misunderstood the movie and that the choice was between Nakia and Killmonger the choice was between humanitarian efforts and engaging in the world in like structured intervention that empowers people versus conquering were the two choices versus isolation i guess were the three choices it was like we don't leave we protect our borders those Mm -hmm. are other people's problems no we leave we conquer the world we empower oppressed people or like no we leave but we just like help people who are oppressed we could do it differently and less colonialistic than european powers do i think having an empowerment in black communities, I think there was a, a synergy between Nakia and Killmonger that's possible. Like, you only get there when you start talking about mm-hmm. skillful action, right? Like, what is the most beneficial thing Wakanda could do for the world? 
it's just like I think a much better conversation than like what's right or wrong because moralization to me is always about who's a good person and who deserves belonging and who deserves support which is just like not a useful conversation I think we start with everybody deserves support and belonging and that most people are just trying to get their needs met and like domination logic is just the easiest logic Mm -hmm. to get things like there's something there let me take it it's just like the lowest common denominator of sentient action and like we can teach people how to co-create conditions from which all of their needs can arise Mm -hmm. but again like that can't be the baseline expectation you know you know i think about this when you look at looting or rioting it's like, why didn't those poor Black people create a revolutionary organization with the power to negotiate with hegemonic capitalism? You know, it's just like they took the action that was given to them and living in a society that doesn't teach people the ways to co-create on the level that a people would need to meet their own needs means they're going to fucking riot. That's more about flaws in the system than it is about the individual moral worth of any of those particular actors. And I think that, to me, is important. And actually, not only does it not give us into these like weird moralizing things where I think marginalized people always lose, but it also just sets us up for a constructive conversation about what we can do to resolve the tension that's creating the conflict in the first place. So much of what you've said already has resonated with me, but this this piece as well, like... I think making someone right or wrong, even for a moment, is an oversimplification of so much of who they are. Like, we can't oversimplify people in that way. And so much of the, like, moralization around wronging and righting someone overlooks their experiences as people. I mean, like, even just the trauma that different marginalized folks have experienced. And so I love the naming of, like, let's move beyond right and wrong and let's talk about what's most skillful and what's most beneficial and being more humane to people as we try to create this community, as we, like, move into a place of being together. And I I just love that. The last uh, design principle under interdependence is inviting and nurturing people to show up as their most gorgeous selves, guided by the power of the erotic and acknowledging their unique medicine and purpose. That to me is the, the 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 beautiful part of it, the most beautiful part of it, and also the trickiest part of it. You know, I I am fundamentally guided by Audre Lorde's essay, "The Uses of the Erotic," mm-hmm. and the idea that there is this recognition and striving for somatic excellence in a way, and just like deep sensual connection that is not sexual, but is erotic in this like deeply visceral, somatic, and sensuous way that we have only allowed people to experience in the pornographic. The gross satisfaction of a need versus the like deep delving into the pleasure of being. And that like when we are in touch with the pleasure of being, like some things become untenable. Coercion and like alienation under capitalism just becomes untenable when we are actually in touch with the pleasure of being. And we can reorient what we want in life when we focus on that versus acclaim versus, you know, status, stature, 
right? The things that actually make us feel most deeply embodied and alive and getting touched with the sort of intuition we have from that deeply embodied and alive place is a powerful anecdote to domination because there's very few things and there's very few situations in which if we are practiced, we could confuse this sort of momentary elation that might come with getting a need met through domination with the kind of deep embodied pleasure of the erotic that comes from liberatory, co-creative, consensual, and like deeply respectful acts for ourselves and other beings. And that as a sort of compass or touchstone for how we interact with other people is just like deeply guiding in the work. And to me, this is actually a different thing than saying, follow your gut or your intuition. I think that people often experience fear and are like, I'm afraid. And so I'm following my intuition and I'm like, not going to do this. Mm -hmm. And I think what the erotic is talking about is that we actually go towards what feels the deepest and then we handle the fear that might come from like the vulnerability that's required to get to that level of like embodied sensuousness or the feeling that we don't deserve it. We work through that so we can get what that excellence allows. It's not just being like, I'm afraid, so I'm not going to do it, or I have hesitancy, and that means it's suspect. It's saying like, no, our guide is the erotic, and then our emotions are just data points to talk about what needs to be navigated skillfully to get there. And that, for Wild Seed, really is just like, it, it requires all of the other things we've talked about for that to be the core of how we decide what to do. Because it means that you can never run so fast or so far downhill that you can't stop. Mm-hmm. That like sometimes we get in this productive mode, we put, we send out all the emails, we say this is what we're going to do, and then it no longer feels good. And we have to stop and be like, what was missing? And it could be that like we didn't bring our friend Jim in because he was too busy and it just doesn't feel right without Jim. And what we actually wanted was to be in this deep, loving, embodied relationship with Jim and it wasn't about the project. And so we actually need to stop. You have to allow things to get messy for people to really get into that erotic sense of embodied living and be like, I don't know what this is, but I'm just going to follow it. Like following that doesn't always come in a deliberate plan with timetables and like concrete agreements. It takes offering ourselves up vulnerably, respecting people's boundaries until there's enough trust to take a deeper step into whatever that erotic experience is. And that sort of like vulnerable, sensuous, our dear Lord ties it to something deeply feminine is a place beyond the rational, you know? And I sort of, I tie it a lot to like how Taoism asks us to think about, right? Like, like not to name things so concretely, not to categorize things and not to deliberately create it, but to think almost like the erotic is the way, you know, it is this like deeply alive thing that we can tap into and flow towards liberation. And it requires a different set of tool sets. It's not incompatible with rationality and deliberateness, but it can't sort of be constrained and bottled up and easily understood through rationality and categorizing alone. And so I think that to me is a, 
is the part that I sort of put the most energy in. And if you like hear me talk any place where you can hear me talk in videos or podcasts, I talk about a lot, but it is actually still for me the hardest thing because it's embodied. This also means it's difficult to communicate mm-hmm. with other people who aren't also following the erotic. People think of you as really particular. If you're just like, no, this actually doesn't feel right in my soul. Like this isn't the level of like bounding with joy that like is kind of the basis of how I decide what I do now. Mm-hmm. Like it's not even, it's not always joyous, but just like rightness, fullness. It's one of the reasons why I love working with Erica because she's so used to it, so skillful with it, and will never question if you're like, oh, pause. This doesn't feel like joy. This doesn't feel like that deep aliveness. I don't have that energy with it. Can we pause and think through what might be blocking me or how we need to shift? Mm-hmm. And that's just a fundamentally different way of working. And to tie it to like what we already started, I think part of the like unilateral giving that I found, like one of the biggest gifts we can give in community is like letting people be in their erotic joy. And just giving them the space to experience that without judgment or shame and just like creating the conditions where they can just revel in that and lead from that is I think one of the most nurturing ways we can sort of mother each other to build a deep sense of belonging. Thanks so much for listening. For more information on Wild Seed and to get involved in any way, check out wildseedsociety.com. And we could always use a share, a like on whatever platform you're on. All that stuff really helps us rank on algorithms and reach more people and all that jazz. You know the drill. We've got more episodes on Wild Seed coming right up, so stay tuned. We're so, so excited to share this project with you. And again, you can check out more at wildseedsociety.com.